0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Voters in Colorado face a key question right now, what to do about transportation, gridlock, worn-out roads, deteriorating bridges. In a recent survey, more than a third of people in Denver described their commute as worse than it was five years ago. Twenty percent said they had quit their jobs because it's such a pain to get to work. Now, when I tweeted about that survey, several folks responded with their stories. Here is what Melanie Tomich wrote in a tweet read here by a member of our staff. I'm a consultant. And even though the year was slow, one of the reasons I didn't pursue a proper job was the thought of commuting. Another CPR staffer reads a tweet from Dan Rutherford, who was actually offered a full-time job but turned it down. I had a short-term project that evolved into a full-time position
1: if I wanted, but declined. Great company and fantastic team. Only downfall was the drive.
0: Well, this election, voters will consider two very different proposals to deal with transportation. And we're joined by a supporter from each side. Kelly Bruff is president of the Denver Chamber of Commerce. She heads a statewide coalition of business leaders who back Proposition 110. It's a state sales tax increase that would raise $20 billion over the next 20 years for a mix of roads and transit. Hi, Kelly.
2: Hi, thanks for having us on.
0: And John Caldera runs a libertarian think tank called the Independence Institute. His plan is Proposition 109, nicknamed Fix Our Damn Roads. It would allow the state to borrow $3.5 billion for road improvements, but there'd be no tax increase and the bonds would be paid off with existing state funds. Hi, John.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: We'll go in number order. So, John, with 109, briefly, how is your approach going to help solve the transportation problem in Colorado?
3: First of all, let's take a look at some of the frustrations that your uh, listeners were having. And it's not a surprise when you look at the state budget over the last 20 years. We have spending now and outlays 3 times more than we did 20 years ago, yet our road funding has remained flat. Imagine imagine making 3 times as much in income but not putting any more into your retirement savings account. That's what the state has done. And we're saying we need to rebalance that. That the reason we're stuck in this terrible traffic jam on our state highways is because the state hasn't been keeping up with this core function of government. Next to public safety, Transportation is the key function of our state government, and they have been starving our roads as our population has been exploding. And now that we have such incredible surpluses coming into the state, we're saying let's take a fraction of that new surplus and use that to build our roads. all right, and you want the state then to live within its current
0: means under what has been economic expansion, uh, certainly in the last few years. All right, Kelly Bruff, as I said, the measure you support, Prop One Ten, would raise the state sales tax by just over six tenths of a percent, uh, raising about twenty billion dollars over the next two decades. Uh, you'd borrow six billion up front to get work started. What will that money buy? A frustrated commuter.
2: Well, it'll buy a seriously improved transportation system. And as your listeners pointed out, we all agree we need to fund our system better. It's been 30 years since we've done anything meaningful to impact our transportation. As a matter of fact, today, we're funding our system at about half what we were funding per driver in 1991. And that's why our experience is so bad. So it brought together a huge statewide coalition that we've been working with. It includes representatives from urban Colorado, rural Colorado, Uh, Democrats, Republicans, state officials, local elected officials, business leaders, labor groups, all saying for a small increase, six cents on $10, we can raise about $797 million a year. We can bond, out of that money, $6 billion in projects. Remember, CDOT has a $9 billion project list. And we can address local needs. And when you consider that 88% of the roads you drive on are maintained by your cities and counties, you have to address both the state and the local needs if you're going to improve our system.
0: CDOT, of course, the Colorado Department of Transportation. I will note there's another big difference between these plans. So Prop 109, Fix Our Damn Roads provides money for state roads and interstates. Prop 110, the tax increase, would fund state and local roads and other transportation projects, maybe like a regional bus system or a bikeway that a community might want. You, you've both uh, painted a picture of the state's starving transportation, but in recent years they have directed some additional funds to roads in the state. But Kelly, address this fundamental idea of a tax increase. Colorado's economy is certainly growing, but so is the cost of living. Housing prices, for instance, are among the highest in the country. Why not take a more limited approach like John's to avoid a tax increase?
2: Yeah, so the coalition we worked with actually did take a limited approach. Uh, there would be a lot in the state who would argue we should be asking for more money. There's a couple of reasons we focused on both a tax increase and a sales tax. So first, while the state has increased revenue, it's projected to hit its taxpayer bill of rights, the TABOR limits, in 2019, which means the state can't retain that revenue. It will refund it to taxpayers. So you can't use it for transportation or anything else. That reality caused our coalition to say, you really need to raise revenue dedicated to transportation. You're
0: saying that Tabor
3: mitigates the bounty that we've described here so far. Exactly. Okay. Uh, John Caldera, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, a 21% sales tax increase brings uh, a terrible burden on on working families. I think about folks in Commerce City who will be paying close to 10%. With all the other sales tax increases in Denver, it could be up to 9% sales tax. That hurts working folks uh, right where they live. There is so much money coming into the state underneath the taxpayer bill rights cap. Thanks to pulling out things called fees, we now have room to bring in so much more money. Remember, the state budget we're spending three times as much as we did 10 years ago. Excuse me, three year, uh, 20 years ago. So by borrowing and focusing on jumpstarting these most critical projects, this is something that's been done before. We called it the Trans Initiative, the T-Rex project. Uh, was this was a widening of I-25 through Denver, for instance, and 25 other projects around the state. Yeah. And we heard that, you know, we heard, oh, it can't be done. The difference back then when Bill Owens pushed it and voters approved was the money was actually coming out of the budget. With Fixed Our Damn Roads, Prop 109, that money is coming from the surplus money that's coming in. People might not realize, and they will at the end of the year when they do their taxes, that the Trump tax code actually means a tax increase for most people's state income tax. in fact, we'll be bringing in almost $900 million more a year, according to the state government. And you think that should be tapped for roads? I think some of it should be. Mm. When you see how much we've starved roads over the last 20 years, we need to reprioritize. When
0: when I look at both Prop 109 and 110, another difference I see is just the amount of money that would be generated. Uh, What do you say, John Caldera,
3: to those who complain that, that 109 is just a drop in the bucket? It's not a drop in the bucket. It is a serious amount of money to jumpstart the uh, most critical projects. Let me be really clear and, and concede, this is not a silver bullet, uh, nor is it a uh, unicorn bullet uh, like 2110. Uh, a unicorn bullet? <laughs> I like I that. have never That's heard that nice term, nice term image. I was going to say Christmas tree list. It is a doable amount. My sense is that people are not ready for a statewide tax increase. They're usually not. They usually go down very strongly. So what is it that we can get done immediately? And that's where 109 is.
0: All right. And on 110, Kelly Bruff, to this idea of the sales tax increase, you are hearing from mayors like the mayor in Colorado Springs who says, listen, we've already passed some local taxes uh, to address our own local transportation needs. Along comes the state, perhaps with its own tax increase, and the burden is just going up too high in our specific community. Would you address that concern for us?
2: Yeah, you have two huge issues. First, rural Colorado. Local communities there are not going to be able to on their own solve their transportation needs. And why would we in the metro area care about that is because we have a workforce who cares about getting around the state. It's part of the quality of life we sell here. And if you're going to fix a system, you have to fix it, not city by city and hope everybody comes up with their contribution, but you have to fix both the state system and the local system.
0: Do you have any concerns that the tax rate is getting too high in some Colorado communities?
2: So our tax rate, when you combine both state and local, is still very competitive uh, in the country. Um, and so we don't have concerns about it. Our greater concern is our failure to invest is impacting us greatly. A study was done, Ryan, that shows each of us today is paying over $2,000 a year in use, using more gas because we're sitting in traffic, damage to our vehicles because of the condition of our roads, more accidents, $2,000 a year. You talk about impacting working families. This small increase in sales tax
0: will help reduce that cost.
3: John Caldera, there's nothing... First, first let me say that a, a 21% jump in our state's Sales tax. It's not a small amount. It is a serious investment. I,
0: I, I haven't done the
3: math on the fly. Is that right? 21%? No, the math
2: is wrong. What you pay in sales tax, this will be roughly about a 7 or 8% what you pay in sales tax total.
3: Our current sales tax is 2.5% on the state level. This adds another 0.62%. is an increase of 21%. And any way you cut it, it means that places like Boulder and Longmont and Superior will be paying 9%, uh, same thing down in Colorado Springs, which is why mayors like the one in Jamestown and all over say, wait a second, this could hurt our ability locally if we want to raise more taxes for local mobility, local projects for seniors, local safety projects. You know, and by the way, let me, I, I want to concede a, a couple things. We both agree not enough money is going into, into transportation. Yes, that's right. And I would also agree, uh, something that Kelly has said often, is that there's a problem with our way we tax what we do right now. We do mostly on a gas tax. And uh, as our cars become more efficient, that means we're not getting as much back. So and it's been many need... years since the
0: gas tax has All been right. increased. So, Let me just say that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and as part of our midterm election coverage, we are debating... Uh, politely discussing. Propositions 109 and 110 on your ballot, they both have to do with transportation. They take different approaches. And John Caldera, I'll note that 109 Fix Our Damn Roads really does not make any funds available for
3: alternative transportation. That's a key difference here. Why? Why? Well, when you take a look at how much the state has been putting into transit, it's not as though uh, transit systems are starving for money. Uh, last year, RTD's appropriation was about 2.2 billion dollars, and they carry only a fraction of our commutes, about three or four percent. Whereas, CDOT got a whopping 1.4 billion. In other words, n- almost half. In other words, we're spending a lot of money on transit as it is. Our roads are in trouble, and we need—we're at a crisis, and we need to start investing in these problems. Otherwise, we're going to have safety issues, and people could lose their lives if we don't make roads safer. In a realistic way. Okay. You are basing Fix Our
0: Dam Roads in part on the economic bounty that Colorado is experiencing. I want to play the view of the current governor. Uh, this is John Hickenlooper. Uh, I asked him about Prop 109.
3: Fix Our Dam Roads would want to bond, basically borrow $3.5 billion, and the state would have to pay that back every year with no new resources. And I think that's crazy that the people proposing this are not willing to say where they're going to make these cuts, how many people are going to lose health care coverage, how much are we going to pull back from our education funding.
0: All right. So as he tells it, other
3: things will suffer if 109 goes forward. Address that. I've seen these scare tactics before, but we've done this before with a T-Rex plan. And in fact, with the help of the Denver chamber back when we didn't have these massive surpluses pouring into the state, you know, I understand there are but those. Isn't that a sort of bellwether uh, or, or good weather
0: prediction? Like what happens at the economy? No, takes? because there,
3: there is a structural change to federal tax law, which means a federal uh, a change to our taxes as well. You think that Trump tax cuts uh, lend a certain stability to this? Well, what happens is the line item you take from your federal form to do your state income taxes, that goes up dramatically. If we wanted it to be revenue neutral, we'd have to lower the tax rate. But let me just say this. Other governors, like Bill Owens, partnered with the Denver Chamber of Commerce 20 years ago to do something when we had even less money. So to say that even if times were awful, that we could not reprioritize less than 1% of our spending towards roads. I don't know any household that couldn't reprioritize 1%. Of their budget, of course,
0: tax policy doesn't necessarily stay the same. That could change too if an administration well, we have so changes.
3: And revenue. Let me just one last thought. If we wanted to, we could pay this off in three years with the amount of surpluses we have. So we have lots of choices.
0: I want to say, Kelly, that Governor Hickenlooper does back Prop 110, the tax increase, but you're not getting rousing support from either of the two candidates running. To replace him, the major party candidate. So Republican Walker Stapleton sides with John Caldera in favor of the bond issue without a tax increase. And Democrat Jared Polis isn't too hot on the idea of a sales tax increase to, to pay for this.
2: What do I say to that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) The the
0: question is implied, I suppose.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I think what we, you know, when you look at our coalition, what you're going to see is a huge diverse coalition, many of whom normally don't support tax increases. And the chamber is not a huge fan of tax increases until you do the math and you realize the only way we're going to address and improve our transportation system so our lives are better is if we fund it. And one of the reasons we like sales tax is the first $92 million that's raised is paid by tourists people who visit our state. And so that was one of the reasons the coalition supports a sales tax as the strategy.
0: So I saw the results of a recent poll, and I think the poll was actually partly funded by the Independence Institute and Fix Our Damn Roads. But it does show that people lean uh, towards 109, Fix Our Damn Roads, of those who are decided. There are many undecided, we should say, On This topic. Can we talk through just briefly like um, voter confusion or perhaps even voter generosity, like the idea that one of these might pass? Both of these might pass. Neither of these might pass. Uh,
3: I mean, in many ways, you have dueling measures here, John. I think it's more likely that neither would pass than both would pass. If both were to pass, then terrific. We've got lots of funding for lots of things. I have a feeling one or the other will pass and giving a history of tax increases statewide and polling not only from um, not only from uh, that we've done, but also polling that groups like the Denver Chamber have done with Terrence Group. We have seen that this is not a very popular proposal, but we'll find out on Election Day and we can vote either way. I'll give you the last word, Kelly Bruff.
2: We have done a lot of polling and research. Uh, Our initiative, Prop 110, is built around what voters value local control, money coming into their communities, an identified list of priorities, 20 years it goes away, the biggest projects that improve their quality of life. And voters have consistently told us they like this
0: and support it. Thanks for being with us, both of you. Thank you. Kelly Bruff, president of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, she heads a coalition in favor of Prop 110 to raise the state sales tax for transportation. John Caldera heads the Libertarian Independence Institute. He supports Proposition 109, otherwise known as Fix Our Damn Roads. It would raise $3.5 billion in bonds and repay them with existing state funds. And we'll note again that with two ballot measures addressing the same issue, there are any number of outcomes. So if they both pass... There would presumably be a bigger infusion of money for transportation and some details that might have to be worked out legally. And if neither pass, the legislature has a plan to go to voters with a funding measure in 2019. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Love and loss are some of the most fundamental issues humans face. Well, trust a scientist to look somewhere other than people to try and gain understanding. So our next guest, CU Professor Zoe Donaldson, studies little rodents called prairie voles to learn about grief. That may sound outlandish, but Donaldson just landed a $1.5 million grant from the National Institutes of Health for her work. And Zoe, welcome to the program.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: What are you trying to learn about grief?
4: So we don't know much about grief at all. Um, And a big part of that is if you think about it, when you lose someone, your first instinct is not to run out and enroll yourself in a scientific study. Um, And so there really is this pressing need to try to understand some of the biology of grieving. And one way that we can work around this is to study it in an animal.
0: Or an animal different from the human animal, I suppose. Different Uh, from the human animal, absolutely. Right. You're working with a colony of 100 prairie voles. We're talking about little brown creatures around the size of mice. Uh, To some, I suppose, they're pests in the garden. They dig, they Mm -hmm. eat plants. My producer thought voles were ugly. I think they're quite cute, frankly. But what, what do they have in common with people that makes you want to study them for grief? So, like people, voles can form these long-term bonds with their mating
4: partner. And what that means is if you can form a bond, you can also lose a bond. And this is actually really rare amongst mammals. So, only about 3 to 5% of mammals have this capacity to form these bonds. And that means it's pretty rare, and you can't just use mice or rats to study this. So, monogamy pretty rare in the animal world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, in the mammalian world, it's much more common in birds, Um, So 90% of birds are monogamous, and it's very rare in mammals.
0: How did someone find out that voles are, you know, committed?
4: So this is a great story because it goes back to a field ecologist who was working in Illinois. And he put these live traps out there because he just wanted to get a sense of the dynamics of rodent populations. And what he realized is that he often caught the same two voles together in the same traps. He would... He would catch him, release him, and then he would find him again in the same trap over and over. And so he thought, you know, this is really not typical. Like, this is not what you see for rodents. Mm. So he thought, maybe these guys are monogamous. Maybe these pairs are bonded.
0: And he clearly extrapolated or found that that's true for not just those two voles. It was true for voles in general. Okay, I, I kind of hate where I think this is leading, which is that if you're going to simulate grief, or cause grief? Do you have to separate the voles? How does this work?
4: We do. So it's really critical for our experiments. Um, And so what we do is we take bonded pairs, um, and we need some way then to ask, how can we study the absence of a partner, right? That's not an easy question. So what we do is we take a pair, and we take one of them, and we say, hey, we're going to train you. If you press this lever, we're going to reward you by reuniting you with your partner. Um, and so how much they're willing to press that lever gives us a metric for how motivated are you to reunite with your partner when they're not here. Um, and then the premise is essentially that this is this fundamental motivation that reinforces our relationships over time. It helps to maintain them, cement them. Um, but when you lose someone forever, that motivation doesn't just go away. It remains unfulfilled. And so we try to create that same situation for the animals that I study. And the way that we do that is we, we take away their partner, but then we put them back into this behavioral test where they previously learned that they could press a lever, only now there's a twist. We don't reunite them. And the value of this approach is as we're doing it, we can look directly into their brain and ask what's happening. What are the brain cells that are encoding this motivation and then what happens after we take their partner away? Do these cells just sort of become quiet? Do they get recruited to do something else? In other word, in other words, what does this adaptive process, this healing process look like at the level of brain cell activity?
0: Okay, I have so many questions. Uh, Why don't you first speak to people who think, well, gosh, this sounds cruel?
4: Um, So one thing I would say is that this is absolutely necessary. If you think about the tremendous amount of suffering that people are going through following a loss, there's a subset of those individuals, about one in 10, for whom that acute grief just never gets better. And we don't have much in the way of interventions. There's some therapies, but there's not much else that you can do for these people. And this is not a small amount of suffering. This is this is waking up every single morning and feeling the same way you did the day after you learned that you had lost this person. And so my hope is that by doing this research, we'll come up with new ways to stimulate the healing process in everybody who's grieving.
0: Okay, then you said you look into the voles' brains as, yes. they're, as they're experiencing this loss and this grief. How do you do that?
4: So this is one of the coolest things that I do in my lab, if I might say so. Um, what we do is we have teeny tiny microscopes. They're about two grams. Um, and we put them on the animal's head. And then we use that to peer in uh, to look at which cells are actually firing. And so this gives us, we can look through a window into the brain and we can see cells as they fire, they glow because of a special technique that we use. And we can say, okay, we now know within this part of the brain, all the cells, can we map when they fire onto what the animal's doing? In other words, which cells are firing when they're pressing this lever to be reunited with their partner? And that gives us some insight into the specific cells that will encode this desire to be reunited.
0: And would the idea be then to send medication to, I don't know, like that part of the brain or what does what this solution look like here?
4: So the short answer is we're just at the beginning. Um, So this, one of the things I like the most about this project is that it really evolved from conversations that I had with a medical doctor who specializes in treating people who are having difficulty moving on from loss. And what she said, she really emphasized the need for an animal model in which we can study the adaptive process following the loss of a partner. And so I don't know exactly what we're going to discover. But I do know that whatever it is, we'll know more than when we started. And my hope is that eventually that'll lead to something like a pharmacological therapy that'll help people heal faster. It probably isn't going to be delivery of drugs into one specific brain region. um, But once we know what the patterns of neural activity look like, we might be able to ask, are there already existing therapeutics that can stimulate and speed up this process, for instance?
0: Zoe, thanks for being with us.
4: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Zoe Donaldson is an assistant professor of behavioral neuroscience at CU Boulder, and she recently landed a million and a half dollar grant from the National Institutes of Health to look at grief in voles with the idea of understanding it in people. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. They said, go, go see Dr. Dahl.
5: I'm Carla Walker from Colorado Public Radio Classical, and that's conductor and lecturer Scott O'Neill, my co-host in the CPR Performance Studio, for a new podcast exploring the life and work of one of the great composers, Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff may be the best example, maybe the only example, of a composer who overcame severe writer's block with the help of hypnosis.
0: He'd walk down the street to Nikolai Dahl's house, lie back in a deep, comfortable armchair, and Dahl would speak to him in his soft, hypnotic voice. You will begin to write your concerto. You will work with great facility. The concerto will be of an excellent quality.
5: Hypnosis worked. Rachmaninoff was able to write his second piano concerto, the middle movement of which is absolutely stunning.
0: It starts in the still
6: dark C minor.
0: But very quickly, it turns to a warm, comforting E major.
5: for CPR's great composers wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to CPR's supporting members who make digital content like this possible. Learn more at CPR.org.
0: It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. They often look like birdhouses, but they're filled with books. There are more than 500 little free libraries in neighborhoods throughout Denver alone. The idea for them came from Todd Bowl who passed away Thursday at the age of 62. He had pancreatic cancer. Let's listen back to my conversation with Bull from last year. He was in Denver to declare it a city of distinction. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you very much. How did the idea of Little Free Libraries come to you?
6: It, well, it was just a uh, when my mother passed. You know, I, I, couldn't, uh, I couldn't pray enough when she was dying. I couldn't cry enough. I couldn't scream enough. And so... At her funeral, I gave away a little necklace that said June Bowl, a dancing spirit, 1927 through. And it was based on an old Sioux Indian saying that nobody really ever passes until all they've touched are gone. And so what it was, was a dance uh, of my mother to the community. So I put up this uh, little schoolhouse, one-room schoolhouse, that uh, uh, kind of mimicked where she taught as a,
0: uh, as a teacher. Right, she was a teacher.
6: Yeah, and then I put in books that she'd that she'd had over the years that she'd passed back and forth with family. And I felt it was kind of a gift
0: to the community to celebrate that spirit of who my mother was. Hmm. So in some ways, do you see each little free library as a version of your mother continuing dancing, dancing?
6: Absolutely. Um, I see each little library as like one of my kids and I see each one of them as a dance of my mother
0: around the planet. You call people who put up Little Free Libraries stewards, and uh, there are more than 500 of them in Metro Denver, I guess making it one of the most active regions in the country.
6: Absolutely. Denver's been absolutely wonderful. Uh, They've embraced it as art. They've embraced it as community. They've embraced it as uh, ways of giving back to the community, social justice. They've done all kinds of things, and I've watched them for years. And we've been absolutely impressed what happens. And uh, we know that the 500 you have today in a couple of years will be 1,000. So we we feel that it's becoming a part of the fabric of Denver. And that is really exciting to us.
0: A thought crossed my mind as I was walking through that neighborhood that uh, the people who lived there likely had no problem accessing books. You know, there's the public library uh, where I was walking. They were probably well-heeled enough to buy a book if they needed one. Like What What role do these play? What do you see as the, the mission of Little Free Libraries?
6: Well, uh, I believe, one, that everybody has a right to read and that everybody should read. And, and our long-term goal is in 2035 that we write a book that's entitled We All Read Well Together, The History of the Grassroots Literacy Movement. And what we do is write a chapter every year, and Denver is a big part of that chapter. And the idea is that we don't have enough resources really to, you know, make the difference we need to make totally. So neighborhoods step up and help educate and help with literacy of their own
0: community. And do you find that these Little Free Libraries appear in all kinds of neighborhoods, uh, in more upper middle class ones? Like what, what do you know as you look at their distribution? Um, little
6: Free Libraries, about 85% uh, women. Women mothers are the key drivers of Little Free Library. And what happens is they listen to it on a public radio station like this or read it in the newspaper, and upper class, higher social economic neighborhoods start. And then what happens is it starts to work its way through the community, starts at ending up at the apartment, the trailer home, you know, the schools. And so what happens, it starts out – more social economic, higher levels, Mm -hmm. and then it works its way throughout the community to all levels. And you've seen that in
0: communities around the
6: world, I guess. Detroit, Cleveland, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Los Angeles, El Paso, Phoenix, New Orleans, on
0: and on. Is it data-driven? Like, are you looking at ways in which data can tell you about where they are and where they need to be? Well, we have a world map. And the world map
6: is somebody uh, signs up with us, gets a, a sign, their specific number, and they go up on the world map and we know where they are. And then you can look at the world map anywhere you are going or traveling and go visit a little free library. We know that they need to be really everywhere. And we find out at higher social economic neighborhoods, it's more about building community and connecting community. Mm. And the lower social economic
0: neighborhoods, is more about literacy and building the reading. Um, I opened one little free library, and there is quite the hodgepodge, a biography of the late jazz singer Betty Carter, an adventurer's guide to Hawaii. There was a children's picture book. Do these, though, in some way become a final resting place for books that people want to get rid of?
6: What happens is people often, um, they're book lovers, and book lovers tell us all the time that books are my heart and soul, they define my humanity, they define who I am. I can't live without books. And they tell us all the time, this is a natural extension of who they are. And so the Little Free Library becomes really a part of them. They start out by doing just what you said, as a resting ground for the something they want to get rid of. Yeah. And it turns into the most intimate experience in the community because what happens is you're sharing of your heart and who you are. And what happens is people start sharing their best and most important books to reflect themselves to the
0: community. And for those unfamiliar with what these look like, um, they, they are kind of schoolhouse-like or birdhouse-like. But really, everyone who... EREX-1 does it a little differently. What are some of the, I don't know, like, wackier designs you've seen?
6: Well, everything from rocket ships to, you know, uh, we see things that are out of old bathtubs. We see them on old microwaves. We see them on Old microwaves? Old microwaves, old refrigerators, (laughs) old computers. You know, people turn almost anything they can imagine into a little free library.
0: What is your favorite story about someone encountering a little free library?
6: Well, probably my favorite story was uh, I got approached by uh, the former governor, Jim Doyle of Wisconsin. He tapped me on the shoulder. This is where you're from, right? Right, from Wisconsin. And he said, you know, Todd, he said, I have to tell you, my wife and I love Little Free Libraries. And he said – "and." I want to tell you what's going on in America, he said, that's not who we are right now. He says, this is not we as Americans. We're not this divisive. We're not this polarized. He said, Little Free Libraries is more about who we are. He said, we reach across the aisle. We reach across the street. We pick each other up. We help each other. We don't care where they're from. We want to make their life better. He said, Little Free Libraries is more of a reflection of what Americans really are. And so uh, that touched me deeply. And one more is that a man came up to me and he said after a presentation, Little Free Libraries, I understand them. It's like air conditioning. And I said, Well, you know, what do you mean? Yeah, how so? Yeah. And he said, Well, when he's a kid, he's 60 something. He uh, The parents and his grandparents read on the deck or on their porch. They played in the streets with the kids and the sidewalks and, you know, the fields. And then they got air conditioning. They went in the house, they shut the windows, they shut the doors, they turned on the TV. And he said, and it was all downhill from then, and the digital divide began. And he said, but it's been over 50 years, and with Little Free Library,
0: we're talking again. They're, they're connecting again with the neighborhood around them. It does strike me as kind of beautifully analog, you know, Little Free Libraries in a digital world. And it's outside, for that matter. Are you a steward? Do you have a Little Free Library in, in front of your home, Todd? Oh, several. I have the first one, you know. You have the and, first one, yes. Yeah. <laughs> is
6: that that one is still standing? Yeah, it's still standing. Oh, and I cool. also have the thousandth one that I put to my, that is honoring my dad when he passed. And in that one, I have a music box. You open it up and it plays to dream the impossible dream, which is kind of cool. You're
0: very poetic.
6: I think we're all passionate at heart. And I think that all of us have that, uh, passion inside that we just want to come out and one of the things about the Little Free Library it just is the dance of the community and you find out how many people are really caring
0: and really caring about their neighbors Todd Bowles speaking with us last year as he designated Denver a city of distinction for having more than 500 Little Free Libraries Boll died Thursday at age 62 from complications due to pancreatic cancer This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tower cranes are all over downtown Denver, so some people have a sense there's overbuilding, especially when it comes to apartments. But economists say... Denver actually hasn't built enough apartments. Here's CPR business reporter Ben Marcus.
1: The Uptown neighborhood near downtown is the epicenter of apartment construction. On just a couple of blocks, more than 1,500 units are under construction or just completed. One is a hulking tower called Radius Uptown. I took a tour of one of the units there.
2: Everyone's very
1: friendly. BJ Matthews just moved in herself. She's a new leasing agent for the complex. Here's our two-bedroom. And it's nice. High-end finishes, it's got a view, it's close to restaurants. Still, I was shocked to hear that such a new building is already more than 90% full. To be fair, concessions have helped.
2: So right now we're offering one month uh, free if you sign your lease, like within the month of October. And then we'll throw in six months free parking as well.
1: That's a pretty good deal, actually.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Especially down here, it's hard to find parking. So making sure everyone has somewhere to park is, is great.
1: Concessions for apartments are up sharply, jumping 41% over last year. It's an indication of just how intense the competition is for renters to fill all the new units. And there is a ton of new supply. Builders finished more than 10,000 apartment units in the Denver area last year. Another 30,000 are under construction. This is on 17th Street, across from the popular restaurant Steuben's. Two enormous cranes are busy moving supplies into a city-block-sized pit. This will be another 300 apartment homes when it's done.
6: Here in Denver, we seem to hear, at least, a lot, that there is a shocking amount under, under construction, that the number of cranes in the, in the, in the sky. But this,
1: the numbers don't necessarily agree. That's Matt Vance, an economist for CBRE. He says downtown Denver is probably underbuilt for apartments, especially compared to similar cities like Seattle. Vance says Denver is creating lots of jobs, and people are moving into the state to fill them, and they tend to be young apartment dwellers.
6: You know, as companies are continuing to to find themselves attracted to Denver and bring jobs here, um, we should see a healthy enough demand side to keep everything in check and and to remain, you know, overall pretty healthy. There's no forecast for a dramatic correction.
1: A recent survey of national economists indicated that a recession could hit in 2020, but recessions are hard to predict. Kerry Brutegg, an apartment appraiser, has been in the industry since the 80s. He says there is an unprecedented level of apartment construction right now, far beyond the previous peak of the late 90s. But the units are filling at some of the highest rates he's ever seen.
6: More than double our long-term average, and this is at rent levels that are at record highs for
1: Denver. Average rents in the Denver area have grown to $1,500 a month. Downtown averages $2,000 a month. A lot of the people moving to Denver, they don't have huge salaries. And so actually half of Denver renters are now rent burdened, meaning regardless of income, they spend more than 30% of their paycheck on housing. Still, Bruteg thinks the apartment construction in Denver makes sense to a point.
6: I think that there is room to grow My concern is that we are adding
1: so much product so quickly downtown. It's in a very fast pace. And history suggests that recessions hit apartments hard. People stop filling units immediately. Vacancy spikes. Rents fall. This could be a disaster scenario, especially now because Denver developers are building tens of thousands of units. For now, that's not a problem. And that brings us back to the Radius Uptown apartment building. B.J. Matthews, the leasing agent, she jumped at the chance to relocate here from California. And she's noticed she's not alone. So we've been getting people from
2: Chicago or Connecticut, Washington, D.C., so a lot of transplants out here.
1: Filling jobs and apartments at rates the region has rarely seen. And as long as that lasts, all this construction makes sense. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News.
0: Nurse Tara Rinders had a life-changing experience. She became the patient and says she nearly died. It gave her new perspective on nursing. Rinders is also a dancer and choreographer, and her new show takes place at a hospital. I don't mean it's just set in a hospital on stage. It's in a hospital. Uh, the show is called First Do No Harm, and it is staged at Rose Medical Center in Denver, and Tara, welcome back to the program.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: So, first off, what landed you in the hospital? This was January 2016, I think.
7: I had an ectopic pregnancy. I just had twins six months earlier, and the day I found out I was pregnant again, I um, that evening I started having really intense abdominal pain, and I was like, "Okay, I think this is an ectopic pregnancy." So, I drove to the hospital and I um, went to the ER, and I was in incredible amount of pain. And then from there, things just started to unravel.
0: Will you explain what an ectopic pregnancy is and the effect that that had on your body or life?
7: So it's when the egg implants in the fallopian tube and it's not a, there's not enough space in the fallopian tube. It's supposed to be in the uterus and it's unable to um, grow. And so at that point, as it... Gets larger, um, it it can burst your fallopian tube and cause internal bleeding, which can lead to death if not taken care of.
0: And you were at death's doorstep.
7: <laughs> I felt like I was at death's doorstep. I was they uh, admitted me into the hospital, and I um, I remember having the pain just got worse and worse. Calling my nurse and saying, "Please, I need to go to surgery." And she comes rushing in, and then I pass out. And she takes my blood pressure, and she calls a code yellow, which is the code you call before it gets to a code blue, which is what you call when your heart stops. So I pass out. Um, I just remember so many people coming into my room, and but I could hear everything that was happening, and it was it was pretty scary.
0: I'm I'm fascinated when healthcare workers become patients because mm-hmm. you you must see it with. At once a detached eye, but also not so detached and also a, a sense of what's going on, like a knowledge yes. deeper than the average patient.
7: Yes, it was It was so interesting. I felt like I was living three different lives in that moment, watching everything, knowing everything that was happening, and yet also trying to feel the experience as it was
0: happening. <laughs> what about that experience planted the seed for First Do No Harm?
7: So there was a moment when I realized like, oh, this is really serious. And um, again, my room was just full of people. They are moving my body around and yelling and things were flying and there's just so much energy and I, I was really, really scared. And um, I just remember my nurse came over to the side of my bed and she grabbed my hand and she squeezed it and she whispered into my ear, I am here and it's going to be okay. And I just remember thanking her for remembering me because I was so scared and I couldn't speak. I had no voice. And so I, I knew she was going to be my voice in that experience for me. Uh,
0: all of the staff in the room was so busy taking care of the parts of you mm-hmm. that it was so nice that there was someone who was taking care of the you in you.
7: Mm-hmm. The human. The, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the issues you want to bring awareness to in this production are compassion, but also compassion fatigue mm-hmm. and burnout.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: As a nurse yourself, what are your own experiences with those?
7: You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, and um, there was one experience I realized, like, I was definitely burnt out. And I was an ER nurse, and there was a patient coming in, and um, I hope I don't get fired for sharing this experience. But I just, I I couldn't meet her in her pain. I was, we were, it was a super busy day. I was t- going from task to task, and she, I tried to start RV, and she was, she was also, um, having, I believe she was also having an ectopic pregnancy. And um, she started yelling at me because f- the IV was hurting her. And I was like, I'm trying to help you. I need to get this IV in you so that we can give you blood. You're losing blood. And she was just yelling at me. And and I felt fa- at that point, I just put my hands down and I was like, you know what? I can't do this. And I remember walking out and I look back at that as a total inability on my part to meet her where she was at, what she needed. Did I explain to her what I was doing? I don't remember. Did I come into that room? Did I see her? I don't know. So that was my burnout moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So First Do you No know, Harm is an immersive performance, meaning you don't sit in a theater and watch a story unfold. You're part of the show, led through the hospital, again this is Rose, uh, by performers. Here, here's a taste.
7: So in room one, I have a 49-year-old female, She's a mother of three. She's dying from a rare sarcoma. She had to decide whether to continue chemo or go to hospice. So I brought in the social worker and the ethics committee to help her. I also lined up a meeting with a chaplain, as she just said she wanted someone to pray with during all of this. I sat with her for a long time today and just listened. She's having a really hard time, and to be honest... I think I am too.
0: It gets a bit surreal after that. Where will I go in the hospital? I know you're limiting the number of people who can be in any one show.
7: Yeah, 30 guests are allowed, and you'll go into all these locations in the hospital that most people will never go as a patient. So you go into the basement. We go to the boiler room. We go into this equipment room that just has tons of beds everywhere. Um, We go into the bridge, the different hallways of the hospital. We go into the infusion center. The quiet room. Yeah, we, we kind of take over.
0: The quiet room? Mm-hmm. What's that?
7: It's a room that uh, Rose Medical Center implemented for their employees. So it's this room where they can go and just find some quiet and, just be and rest. Now, you mm-hmm. say
0: the basement. I often associate that with where bodies, dead bodies are. That's not the case here. No, okay, we, we, we won't see any real dead bodies. This sounds like an insurer's worst nightmare. I know. How did, how did you possibly get the clearance for That's this?
7: That's the best question ever. I have no idea.
0: Somehow. <laughs> are you have to answer the question. Yeah,
7: I, it just – everyone was – let this happen. I think we, pe- uh, the people coming in sign waivers uh-huh. right off the bat. But otherwise, we just have set it up so that there's – hopefully nobody gets hurt. <laughs> First do no harm.
0: What do you want people to get out of this?
7: So – I have a limited perspective. My perspective is from the nursing. I brought in two other directors, Leah Bonfilio and Jad Tank. And the three of us, have. we really want people to walk away with this idea that life is now. We need to, you need to wake up and live your life. At any moment, something can happen, and it shifts. And that life doesn't need an invitation. Death doesn't need an invitation. You just have to walk through that door and start living it.
0: So I guess to feel how precarious life is, Yes. Okay.
7: Mm-hmm. And that um, our grief, our grief actually is something that um, can propel us forward.
0: Does the nurse who held your hand in that critical moment, does she know the impact she had on you?
7: I don't know. I I wrote a comment card for her, but I don't know. It, I've thought many times about reaching out to her because of this, and um, that's a really good idea. I probably should.
0: Okay. How do you think this has changed your view of nursing?
7: It's made me much more appreciative of the work we do. I, f- I find this job as a calling, as something sacred, as um, one of the most incredible professions that are out there to sit and be with people in some of their worst nightmares and in the, in, in the midst of their suffering and be able to sit with them in that and care for them.
0: But you can still have a bad day.
7: Absolutely. Yeah. I have so many bad and days. And you
0: can still even be in a bad mood, right? I mean, what would happen if you couldn't come to work sometimes in a bad mood?
7: And that's the thing. It's, like, it's bringing that bad mood and that authenticity into your nursing.
0: Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Denver choreographer Tara Reinders. Her new show, First Do No Harm, runs through October 28th at Rose Medical Center in Denver. It's actually part of a year-long residency she's doing, and the next phase... She'll work directly with nurses. Finally today, a worldwide sing-along will take place Saturday. World Singing Day was founded in Boulder in 2012. It has grown to more than 200 cities in 40 countries. This year's tune is called Ode to Song, which is sung to Beethoven's Ode to Joy, with phrases from more contemporary popular songs, here is the Colorado Spirit Chorus with a preview of these weekend's worldwide sing-along. Just imagine it with a bunch more voices. World Singing Day is Saturday, with thousands expected to turn out in Boulder, Colorado Springs, and around the globe. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I just want to say thanks to all of you who gave during our membership campaign. It means the world to us. This is CPR News.